We've all seen the incredible horse and rider combinations as the backbone of our sport. But what about everything else that makes the equestrian world tick? From the everyday grind to the world-class professional, join the Equestrian Podcast as we talk about every equestrian discipline in a way that hasn't been done before. Now here's your host, rider, trainer, and influencer behind my equestrian style, Bethany Lee. Hello, and welcome back to the Equestrian Podcast. I'm your host, Bethany Lee, and this is episode 103. Today, I'm talking to one of the most recognized names in the equestrian industry as she is both a famous rider and an author. As a dressage rider, she was a member of the United States Equestrian Team competing internationally, and she also had a position as the reserve rider for the bronze medal-winning team in the 1992 Olympics. She was a coach for the Canadian three-day event in 1996, the 2004 Olympics, and she coached a number of dressage and event riders that attended the 2000 Olympics. As an author, she has written so many best-selling books like That Winning Feeling and It's Not Just About the Ribbons, Cross Train Your Horse for Performance and Pleasure, The Winning Attitude, Dressage 101, and she recently is coming out with her newest book, Dressage Between the Jumps. She is known for instilling adult amateurs with the confidence they need to be effective riders. So without further ado, let's hear it from our guest, Jane Savoie. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. Amazing. Well, I would love to hear about how you first got started in the equestrian world. Well, many, many, many (laughs) decades ago, when I was eight years old, my parents, on a summer vacation from school, set up um, a series of 10 riding lessons for my sister, who's three and a half years older than me, 10 riding lessons at a local Hack stable, actually. And so I started with those 10 lessons when I was eight years old. Of course, even prior to that, I mean, I was just a horse crazy mm-hmm. little girl. I would go to the school fair and, you know, hit the, they had all these little things where you take a softball and you try to knock the milk bottles over and stuff like that. Yeah. And what I wanted to win were these three inch high plastic horses and they had pink horses and blue horses. And, and so I won a bunch of those and I took them home and the pink horses, of course, were girls and the blue horses were boys. And I remember being in my bed and laying out my bedspread and having horse shows with them and setting up little jumper courses and stuff like that. So I always been nuts about horses, even though I don't come from a, a family that, that has any kind of background with horses, but because my parents knew that I was horse crazy little girl, they they allowed us to, when I was eight to have those ten riding lessons. And my sister, you know, she she liked it, and she took you know a few more. She probably rode another year after that, but she went on to other things that interested her more. But I was just hooked, and so how many decades later, still taking lessons? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, still learning. But anyhow, it start, started when I was quite young, eight years old. I think I was in third grade. Amazing. So you were, you know, learning about equestrian sport. You said you were playing with your horses on your bedspread and doing jumper courses. What mm-hmm. ended up drawing you to dressage? Well, I came in through the back door. I did that kind of backwards because I went to the University of Massachusetts who had a fabulous horse program. Linda Jaskel Brown was the director of the program. And, but they were, you know, mainly doing eventing. And so that's, as a kid, I had done hunters 
And then when I went to UMass and Amherst, because of their program, I got involved in eventing and I did that. And then when, after my husband and I were married, I worked at the university because he was in graduate school. I worked there in the animal science department for a couple of years and I was able to continue riding in their program as an alumni. And that was great. Okay. And then we moved to Vermont. But prior to that, I was still at the university. I just remembered this. And Linda, who I mentioned was the director of the program, she was trying out for the 76 Olympic team. And so she was going to Gladstone, New Jersey. And I went as her groom. Bent Lundquist was the coach of the team and he was doing a training session. So I went as Linda's groom. And when I wasn't grooming, I was just sitting in the stands like a little sponge soaking everything in. Yeah. And Linda Zhang, who most everybody knows is a O judge, fabulous, fabulous judge, fabulous person. She just saw how intent I was. And she said, you know, I have a horse in my barn. Her barn's in Maryland. And he's a racehorse who bowed a tendon on the track and he's been in layup at my barn for six months and the the owners have not paid any board on him. And, you know, it's been six months, of course, just shows you how many decades ago that was because the board for six months was a whole $500. (laughs) And so that's what they owed. But, you know, my husband and I have been having only been married for a year and we had money and $500 was about our life life savings. So I called him from Gladstone and I told him what Linda had said. And I said, you know, can we use this money? And I want to buy this horse. So, you know, this is basically sight unseen, this thoroughbred off the track. And so he said, yeah, go for it. He's always been very, very supportive. <laughs> but when, you know, I got the horse and that was great, but he had this huge, it was healed, but huge bowed tendon. Hmm. And I thought, I can't jump this horse. I can't right. get this horse, you know, because I'm risking re-injuring his tendon. So that's when, you know, I started, I thought, well, what can I do? And I decided to specialize in dressage at that point. And I, I mean, I was, I had a passing familiarity with it from, yeah. from the eventing, but, you know, we're talking doing a training level test. Sure. And, um, but anyhow, so if I was going to continue to train this horse, it had to be to do, you know, in a, a discipline where he wouldn't injure himself. Right. Had he had any dressage background? Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> All he knew was What to, was that process like? It was interesting. It was... <laughs> It was slow because Mm -hmm. it was like blind leading the blind. I think we probably advanced, if that's the right word, one level per year. Like we were one level train, uh, one year training level, and one year at first level, and blah blah blah. Yeah. Plus, as I said, we didn't have any money, and so I didn't have a lot of training with clinicians. I was able to afford to go to two two day clinics a year. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't have a truck. I didn't have a trailer. So I borrowed each of those and each of those from the truck, from one person, the trailer from another and yep. we trailed down to Hamilton, Massachusetts. And I had clinics with Cindy Sidnor, who's still, I consider one of my major mentors. And I think that probably much of my teaching style is patterned from Cindy. She's had such a great influence in my life, but mm. What I did in between that is my Bible became Padaski's complete training of horse and rider. Okay. 
I can't tell you how many, how many copies of that book I've been through because, you know, yellow highlighter, you know, <laughs> dog-eared pages. And, you know, when I first started, there was a reading it, there were a lot of things that I just, I didn't understand, you know, yeah. what, what does this mean? What does this mean? And then as time went on and, and I was learning more and I would reread stuff, it would make more sense to me. But I think that, you know, the process probably did not have to take as long as it did as far as training this horse. Right. Because I didn't have, you know, an instructor there on a regular basis to help me. And I was basically learning from a book, except for my help from Cindy. Wow. Four days out of a year. Wow. So you were doing that. You were still working at the school. Were you, at what point were you like, I want to really have horses part of my life. I want it part of my career moving forward. Well, when I, you know, I was at the school because I was grooming for Linda, but it, when I got the horse, which I, I renamed him Happenstance, it was right in that time that we moved to Vermont. And I'm a very goal-oriented person. I thought I'm an athlete. I love sports. I love athletics. I love competition and, and working to be the best and blah, blah, blah. So you know, what would be the the highest goal I could reach for? And I'm thinking, okay, Olympic team mm-hmm. or representing your, your country, earning the right to represent your country in international competition. And then I thought at age 25, well, you're not going to be a gymnast. You're a little <laughs> for that, you know, that type of thing. I thought about different sports where I could really aim for the highest in my mind, yeah. um, the highest in, in that sport. And I thought, well, you love animals, you love horses. Why not combine your love of competition and love of country? Cause I'm very patriotic with your love of animals. And so mm-hmm. that's when it, in my mid twenties, it, it became more fully formed in my mind that not only was this going to be my goal, but this was going to be my career. Right. And then what what would you say are some of the like high points or things that when looking back that really stick out from your riding career? I think the biggest high point, like I said, to, for your country mm-hmm. to say that that you're good enough, that you've earned the right to represent them internationally. I mean, that was like a huge, huge thing. So mm-hmm. I remember when they first uh, sent me over and, and some other riders, there were six of us and we had competitions in, this was the year before the Barcelona Olympics. So this was 91. And so we, you know, cause it's, it's, since our sport is so subjective, like figure skating, mm-hmm. the judges have to see you and get confidence in you and stuff like that. I remember when I was packing and getting ready to go and, and talking to some of my friends, I don't know if some of your listeners know Ellen Dixon Miller, hmm. who's been on teams. I'm like, okay, what else do I need to know? What else do I need to bring? Blah, blah, <laughs> blah. And she says, just expect to be last. No matter, even if you do the test of your life, just yeah. expect to be last because they don't know you and they don't know your horse and they hmm. they have to see you and develop some confidence in you. So we went over. 91. And I think my first competition was Rotterdam. So Holland, France, Belgium, Germany. I think I went to competitions in those four countries. But my first competition was Rotterdam in Holland. And 
so they sent us over, mm, I don't know, maybe two or three weeks ahead of time, let everybody acclimate. And they sent us over with saddle pads with the American flag hmm. embroidered on, on the back corners. And talk about a thrill. And I, yeah. remember, I remember being in the stable that they had us in prior to the competition. And I had the saddle pads in my tack trunk and Every day I would look at them and mm-hmm. see that, you know, I had this pad with the American flag on it. And I, I remember the owner of the, the stable coming in and I come out of the tack room and I'm like, psst, psst. you know, and I'm, I'm using my index finger like, come here, come here. He must have thought I was nuts, but I had to share it with somebody. So I showed him the saddle pads and I was all excited. And so the, the high, I mean, that was very exciting leading up Yes. But cantering, oh, I just gave myself goosebumps. Cantering <laughs> down the center line. Oh, yeah. With that pad on and the American flag on, I have to say that's probably the highlight of mm-hmm. that. I, I mean, I don't think anything even tops that. That first time I was able to do that. Yeah, that is absolutely incredible. Uh, you gave me goosebumps too. Oh. <laughs> I love that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What would you say are some major learning moments that kind of stick out in your head as kind of like what you remember or what you've used to maybe figure out what you want to do differently or or things that just shaped you to become a better professional? I learned early, fairly early on that when I finally started competing, I was very, very nervous competitor. Mm. And which if you were riding that horse, you probably would have been nervous too. Gotcha. (laughs) (laughs) Because I mean, he could go from zero to 60 in like half a second. It was that kind of thing. In fact, I had a, I had a strategy for a competition when I first started at training level test one in Mm -hmm. Woodstock, Vermont. And I remember my strategy was to never canter in the warm up. Because I knew that once I cantered, he would be berserk. Game over. Yeah, game over for sure. So I did all the walk and trot in the in the warm up, and I remember going in and and doing my first test. I think Colonel Thackeray was the judge, and and you know in those days it was all the trot and all the walk and then the canter. So the beginning of the test was like you know sixes and sevens and occasionally an eight, and that mm-hmm. was really good. And then came the first canter part, and it was an explosion, and I got a two for that. <laughs> and then the the rest of the canter work, you know, it was like twos and threes and whatever. And then right. Thackeray in the general impressions, he wrote, "Was he stung by a bee?" Oh my gosh, <laughs> was, I love it. That dramatic. So anyhow, between you know, being nervous on him. And I think rightfully so. Right. I, you know, when I went to competitions, which, you know, if I was going to go after this big goal, I had to compete. I spent a lot of the time in the Porta john and yeah. I couldn't eat the day of competition and, uh-huh. you know, really, really nervous. And, and I thought, whoa, you know, if I'm going to, if my goal is to be, to go to Barcelona, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, or to an Olympics, you know, I have to find a way to deal with my show nerves because, mm-hmm. you know, I don't want to be having diarrhea for, to put it bluntly, yeah. for, for 15 years. I want to enjoy the process. So I have to learn tools, techniques, coping mechanisms, whatever, to deal with my show nerves so I could enjoy the 
the process. And that's when I, I picked up a book called Psycho-Cybernetics, written by a plastic surgeon, actually, whose name is Maxwell Maltz. And I learned about the importance of the subconscious mind hmm. and how to program the subconscious mind so that you can achieve whatever it is that, that you want to achieve. So I changed from approaching what I was doing the way I'm hardwired, which is to use iron jaw determination, you know, mm. the, the conscious mind, I will do this, you know, mm-hmm. more is more kind of thing to a softer approach, which was to reprogram my subconscious mind so that I could achieve certain goals, for example, enjoying competition. Another big, big learning moment for me was to learn to recognize shades. That's what I call it, shades of gray. My mantra became a little bit better. I learned and I taught my students to be happy, content, to celebrate moments that were a little bit better. So, you know, if I, if I, I'm just trying to think of an example for my students, if, if their horse had trouble picking up the right lead uh, on a circle, and this had been a continuing problem. And then one day the horse picks up the correct lead and then he breaks or he switches or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's still a little bit better than it right. was when he was never picking up the correct lead. So, you know, people would say to me, did you have a good ride when I finished and riding? And, and I said, I always have a good ride. And the reason that I always have a good ride is I see things in shades of gray. Mm-hmm. As long as something is a hair better, a little bit better than the last time I tried or last week or last month, then then I'm celebrating. So those were big learning moments, both for me in my own riding and also as my development, for my development as a teacher. Definitely. It's so, and it's so interesting being a a trainer myself. It's like you have, you are around people sometimes who are, and I've been here absolutely before in my career where you are expecting perfection every ride. And that is, that's completely, you know, like lining yourself up for failure every single time. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there is no perfection. There's excellence. You can search or have a great goal for excellence, but like you said, you're setting yourself up for failure if you're, if you're going for perfection. And so if, let's say I'm teaching a lesson or I take a student to a competition or something like that. And they come out of the arena and they go, Oh, this was awful. And this was awful. And this was awful. What I will say to them is tell me three things that you liked. Mm -hmm. Tell me three things that were better than they have been in the past. So I work on helping them change their mindset around so that they feel they feel like they've accomplished something, which they have. Just mm-hmm. getting into the arena, they've accomplished something. Many people stay on the sidelines and just critique stuff. But right. now if you put yourself out there and you go down the center line, you've accomplished quite a lot. But rather than, and we all tend to do this, I think, focusing on the negative, oh, you know, I, you didn't cross and the leg yield this way and, and I was leaning forward and blah, 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 blah. You know, if you pick out three positive things and focus on them, you're, you're going to feel like you've, that you're satisfied and you've accomplished something. Yeah, definitely. 
Thanks to our sponsor, Trafalgar Square Books, we have a plethora of equestrian literature to choose from over at horseandriderbooks.com. Whether you're looking to fine-tune your riding or learn a new training technique, read an equestrian novel, or learn about neuroscience of horsemanship, you can find a book that suits your needs over at horseandriderbooks.com. Trafalgar Square Books does an amazing job of finding equestrian authors to really find a perfect book for you, no matter what you are learning or wanting to accomplish in your reading. So make sure you head over to horseandriderbooks.com and take a look at their hundreds of equestrian books. I don't know about you, but once you take a look, you are going to want to go through all of the collection. So thank you so much Trafalgar Square Books. All right, let's head back to the episode. Would you say that there's several different categories of riders who maybe are lacking some confidence, like as far as like where that lack of confidence stems from? I think lack of confidence is a, I'm going to put in quotes, a disease that runs through everything that we do. I think that it's human nature to lack confidence. But then you add with the horses, you add different things. For example, we're always being critiqued. If mm-hmm. you compete, you're being critiqued by the judge. Right. If you're taking a lesson, even though hopefully it's positive, you're being critiqued by your instructor because they want you to get better. So mm-hmm. you're hearing the things that need to be improved. So you're being critiqued in that way. And then the worst critic of all is yourself. You know, it's just I I hear people and I stop them when I hear this, but I'll hear things like, oh my God, I'm an idiot. I always do this or blah, blah, blah. Or Mm -hmm. my left hand has a life of its own and I'm always pulling on the left rein. No wonder my horse can't do such and such. Mm -hmm. So by nature of the sport, you know, it's a, a sport where we're constantly dealing with criticism, whether it's from ourselves, from our teachers or from judges. So I think that in addition to lack of confidence, just sort of permeating the human condition, I think those three things also add to it. Definitely. Yeah, I agree. What kind of role does confidence play? I mean, this is an obvious question, but I'd love for hear your opinion, hear you expand upon it, that the, the role that confidence plays in just a rider's ability to be effective in the saddle. I think that it's paramount. However, enjoying the journey, the process, if you're confident, you know, while you're while you're doing whatever it is that you're doing, then then you're gonna have that much more fun. And most of us don't ride because we plan on making an Olympic team. Most of us ride because we love horses mm-hmm. and we love learning and we want to have fun. This is our our mental break from maybe from our, you know, raising the kids or having a job mm-hmm. or or whatever. So I think I lost track of the beginning of your question. Yeah. And, and even I'm, I'm thinking about the question more and, and maybe effectiveness isn't the correct term, but maybe consistency, but the role that confidence plays oh. in a rider's ability to be effective or consistent in the saddle. I, I think it's, it's like that for any sport or any endeavor. I think that the, the levels that you reach and the, the degree of enjoyment that you have is directly related to the amount of confidence you have. And being confident allows you to expand your world 
to such a greater degree, because if you're feeling inept or incapable, let's say at training level for the dressage riders, but I know that riders in other disciplines can just apply this to their to their own discipline. If, if you're feeling, oh, this isn't good enough and that's not good enough, you're going to stay in your tiny little world mm-hmm. at training level and you're not going to, quote unquote, take the risk to your ego or whatever else to say, you know what, I'm going to, all right, I know my leg yield to the right is really not so good, but I'm Mm going to go do first level. I'm going to stick my toe in that water and, and, you know, expand my world a little bit. So I think that type of thing, expanding your world, not just getting stuck in your comfort zone Mm -hmm. um, because you're not confident to get out of your comfort zone. I also think, I mean, because it's, Every horse is different, just like every rider is different. Having confidence allows you to be what I call a problem solver. Mm-hmm. And you're always, like I said, all the horses are different. So you need to have the confidence to say, okay, I'm going to try this to solve this particular problem. And what was it, Einstein that said the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over yeah. and a different result. And so you do that three or four times and you find, whoa, this is just making it worse. Well, rather than beating yourself up, dig into your bag of tricks as a problem solver Mm -hmm. and say, okay, for this particular horse, this doesn't work. I'm going to do the opposite, or I'm going to do this, or I'm going to do that. And so I think having confidence allows you to experiment like that, to become Mm -hmm. a problem solver, which is just going to make you a better rider slash trainer. Yeah, definitely. I love your, I was looking and have been looking at your website and looking at all of the books you've written and all of this mentality and structuring your learning, shining through the books that you've written. I mean, even when it says on your website, transforming adult amateurs into effective, Mm -hmm. confident riders, why the emphasis for you on adult amateur riders? You know, I did for two years, USDF asked me to do the adult amateurs all throughout the country. They they pick different clinicians every two years to do mm-hmm. that. And they really, really are my favorite group to teach because they're like sponges. Yeah. Number one. Number two, they know why they want to ride. You know, as kids, sometimes kids start riding because their family are into horses or sure. have a horse farm or, or whatever, but they're not passionate about riding the way the adult amateurs are. And so a lot of times the adult amateurs, because they've taken time off to raise a family, you know, or to start a business or, or whatever, they've taken time off, but then they decide to get back into it. They do it out of pure passion because they know number one, what kind of commitment it takes in many ways, emotionally, time-wise, financially, whatever. And so that passion, I love teaching people like that. And I, a lot of times new students will say to me, well, you know, I'm only a, I've just barely started first level. And would you teach somebody at my level? And I always say, look, I teach anybody at any level, as long as their attitude is right. Mm-hmm. And I find that the adult amateurs, for me, their attitude is so in sync, that passion um, with what 
lights me up that, you know, mm-hmm. have a passion for what you do. Yeah. I love my adult amateurs. Yeah. And they love it. Everything that you do for them, you know, they don't take yeah. it for granted the way the kids do. <laughs> I shouldn't generalize like that the way many kids do. Right. Yes. <laughs> what are some reasons that you often see adult amateurs that you work with lacking the confidence in their riding ability? Well, you know, getting back to, to the fact that the sport you know, we're always being critiqued and mm-hmm. or slash criticized, depending on how it's presented. And that's the responsibility of the teacher, as opposed to the student, the teacher who teaches with negatives, like don't pull on the left rein, don't pull back, mm-hmm. um, don't lean back rather, don't stick your toes out. Mm-hmm. You know, all of that stuff that don't stuff, all that negative stuff just confirms in the student's mind that that they're inept or incapable of what you're asking them to do. Yeah. And then, you know, it just popped into my mind because it's such a responsibility. And I'm sure as a teacher, you know this yourself, your words are so important. I remember training with somebody for a while and I was having some challenges with one of the horses that I had. And so she said, let me warm him up first and then you get on. And I'm like, okay, fine. So she warmed him up and he looked great. And I got on him and she said to me, okay, before we get started, you can walk around for a little while to let him catch his breath and everything. But whatever you do, do not, there's that nod again, Mm -hmm. do not pick up the reins. And so the message to me in my brain was, she's just done all this fabulous work with this horse. If I pick up the reins and take a contact and start riding, I'm just going to ruin everything she's done, or I'm going to ruin this horse. Yeah. I think that's a, I mean, I think that's a really good point. It really is. But yeah, I mean, I feel like there's so many kind of different avenues, but uh, that where they kind of lack confidence or where that stems from, whether it's like time out of the saddle or maybe a bad experience or a difficult horse, but do you see a common thread throughout the adult amateurs you work with? What you just mentioned, time out of the saddle. As an adult, you know, we're not as flexible, fearless, supple. I'm Mm -hmm. trying to think of words that, that just come naturally physically to you when you're a child. And so the fact that you don't have the the kind of flexibility and suppleness when you're 50 years old that you did when you were 12, I think undermines your confidence as well because you feel, oh, I used to be able to do that, but I can't yeah. do that anymore. What's wrong with me? <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. What would be some advice that you would have for that adult looking to gain their confidence back? Well, it goes back to what I said a little while ago about me learning um, about the power of the subconscious mind. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's one, one thing, like you say, that the more you jump, the more you do this, the more you do that, that, that you're going to get better, especially if you're successful because success breeds success. But what if you're not successful? Uh-huh. What if... Every single time you ask for that right lead canner, you you get the you get the left lead, and mm-hmm. so every single time you do that, you beat yourself up and you think that you're not capable of of setting your horse up to be able to, or coming up with the right problem solving exercise so that your horse can pick up 
the right lead. Right. And then, like you said, you're limited by time, you're limited by finances. So getting back to that, uh, what I was talking about with the subconscious mind, ideally, in order to get better, we have to do, and I put this in quotes because you and I have already discussed the word perfect. Yeah. Ideally, you want to do perfect practice so that, you know, that what you're practicing, picking up this right lead canner, you do it over and over and over again so that it becomes um, your new normal or your horse's new normal to be able to pick up right lead canner. But really the only place that you can practice perfectly is in your imagination. And that's where the subconscious mind comes in. So let's say you get on your horse and for real, you practice 10 right lead cantered aparts mm-hmm. and all of them are horrible. Your horse races <laughs> through the trot or he right. picks the left lead or throws his head up in the air and blah, blah, blah. So you do that 10 times. So that's what you're practicing. So that's what you're going to get very good at doing what we call technically crappy cantered aparts uh-huh. because that's what you're practicing. Right. But the important thing about the subconscious mind is that it can't tell the difference between what's real, those crappy canada parts, and what's vividly imagined. So let's say you get on your horse in real time and you do 10 crappy canada parts. Then you go home and you sit in your easy chair and you take like three deep breaths mm-hmm. so that you relax yourself. And you visualize 100 beautiful, soft, round, on the bit, Canada parts. Your mind, your subconscious mind, which is the part of your brain that truly determines your actions, can't tell the difference between the 10 crappy ones you did for real mm-hmm. and the 100 one, uh, perfect ones you did in your imagination. So you have to get better without spending any more money on lessons wow. or or all those other things that you mentioned, you have to get better because you've done 10 times as many good right lead Canada parts as bad right lead Canada parts. So, you know, it really is like most sports, but I think particularly for riders, it's the riding and riding well is 10% skill, 10% physical, being able to control your body, your position, knowing the aids for different movements, but it's 90% mental. Mm. And so learning to, to make your mental movies, as Sally Swift calls it, riding in your mind's eye, doing perfect practice in your imagination, you're programming yourself to get better. You're programming yourself for success. Wow. That's such great advice. And it's something where Anyone can do it, no matter where you're at and your you know level or ability or whatever. That is such great advice. You have several books out. You have the winning feeling, and not just about the ribbons. You have the cross training your horse for performance and pleasure dressage 101. When did you start writing, or when did you decide that you needed to start writing these things down and, and sharing them in that way through books? Well, mainly because I really shocked myself that that I was able to have that position as the reserve rider for the Barcelona Olympics. Because yeah. when I think back to that journey, there were so many quote unquote facts that were stacked against me mm. that should have prevented me from achieving that goal. You know, I did, like I said before, I didn't have any money. 
I didn't have a horse. You know, it's hard to make the equestrian team if you don't have a horse. <laughs> I didn't have a lot of family support. Like I said, I didn't come from a, a family of animal people, horse mm-hmm. people. I was a very nervous competitor. I've explained that before. I was absolutely not the picture of an elite athlete. I was smoking three packs of cigarettes a day. Mm-hmm. I was probably 20 or 25 pounds overweight. So not the picture of an elite athlete. And the, you know, the facts are, you know, just go on and on why I never, ever should have been able to achieve that goal. But I did. Mm -hmm. And so, and mostly it was through that introduction to all this business with the subconscious mind that I just mentioned with that book, Psycho-Cybernetics. That's how I was able to achieve that goal. And so I thought to myself, you know, this really isn't complicated. And the fact that I did it means that anybody can do it. They just need the tools. They just need to know that it's not the conscious mind that determines your actions. So I came back in 92 and I thought, oh my God, all these people are sabotaging themselves, both Mm -hmm. with the pictures in their mind's eye and the second way that you program your subconscious mind, the words that come out of your mouth, like saying, I'm an idiot, or I can't do this, or I'm uncoordinated, or I always forget my test, or blah, blah, blah. Your subconscious mind, like I said, just hears and believes everything you say and visualize, sees it as the goal and tries to make it so. So those two things, you're what you say and what you visualize actually determine your performance level and your attitude. So when I realized, oh my God, this is so much more simple than than willpower, I thought I'm going to put this in a book so that those who want to get out of this self-sabotaging type of mindset can apply some of these things and do exactly what I did. And so that first book, That Winning Feeling, actually is quite autobiographical because it's it was my journey it was it was the jane that was in the porta potty and mm-hmm. you know the person that second guessed herself and and thought she was inept and and saw the list of the 12 people that were had made the long list for the olympic team and i could understand why all 11 of those other people were on that list. Of course, they're fabulous. Of course, they're they're on the long list. And then I would see my name and I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> I don't belong in this company. Oh, wow. um, so that's what started the whole book writing thing. I love it. And everyone can check out your books over on the Trafalgar Square Books website, correct? The horse and rider books.com. Yep. Horse and rider books.com. I also have them on the Jane Savoy.com uh, website, but either way. Perfect. Something I always ask my guests is an area that you are passionate about within the industry that you feel like the rest of the community either doesn't know a lot about, or just doesn't talk that much about. One of the things that I think that I am passionate about and that needs more attention in the horse industry is abuse. And sometimes abuse is from professionals and they know what they're doing, but they're, they want the income or um, the notoriety from winning classes or whatever. And so there's a lot of sad, in my estimation, abuse of horses. But more important, I think, is that amateurs often don't realize when they're abusing their animals. 
And so this is a big thing. I wanted to shine a light on abuse so that amateurs would learn that inadvertently what they're doing constitutes abuse of this creature that they love. Mm. And so they need to know more about it. So that being said, what, after I finished dressage between the jumps, I worked on I novel and it's called Second Chances. And it's about abuse in the genre of uh, light romance. So it's in that romance genre. So it's a romance story set in the horse world that shines a light on abuse and hopefully helps amateurs to think about what they're doing that that is abusive to their horses, even though they don't mean to be. Amazing. Wow. I'm so excited to read both of those. I know. <laughs> oh, cannot wait. Well, Jane, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. I, I'm going to head over to the website and order some of those books right now, because I think even just from, from a rider standpoint, from a trainer standpoint, and just being an equestrian, I think there are, I think you cover so many areas that are so important, like what you're saying within our subconscious and within our mind and things we can be doing, you know, at home or wherever we are. So I just thank you so much and I wish you all the best. Well, thank you. It was fun. Thanks for inviting me. All right. That is all I have for you today. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please take a minute and write a review on iTunes. I would so appreciate it. It helps people like you find the podcast and it helps me get some killer guests. Thank you so much, and I will talk to you next week.